Hello and welcome to the podcast series on laboratories of differentiated integration in the post-Brexit Europe. This podcast series is brought to you by the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of Agder in Norway. Throughout the series, we will explore different topics related to an increasingly dynamic European Union and bringing experts to share their insight on the European Union. I'm your host, Johan Andersen, and I would like to welcome our two guests for today's episode on the topic of science diplomacy. With us today, we have the privilege of having two very special guests joining us via Zoom. The first guest is uh, Professor Mitchell Young. He is an assistant professor in the Department of European Studies at the Faculty of Social Sciences at Charles University in Prague. His research is focused on knowledge governance and science policies in the EU and member states, both internally as a form of European integration and externally through science diplomacy as a tool in foreign policy. He was the Empirical Cases Work Package leader for the recently completed Horizon 2020 project, using science for or in diplomacy for addressing global challenges. This is abbreviated as the S4D4C. He is a member of the EU Science Diplomacy Alliance and a chair in the ECPR Standing Group on Knowledge, Politics and Policies. He teaches courses on EU policies, comparative political economy and European economic integration. And he holds a PhD in area studies from Charles University, an MA from the University of Chicago and a BA from Williams College. And I'd also like to introduce our second guest, Professor Thomas Henekel. He's an associate professor of public policy at the University of Agde in Norway and the senior research associate at the German Development Institute in Bonn. His research and teaching is focused on European politics, public administration, EU foreign and security policy, international cooperation and development, and more widely on comparative politics and organization theory. Previously, Professor Henekel had worked for the European Commission in the External Relations DG from 2011, the European External Action Services, and among other assignments in the EU delegation in Tokyo. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Agda, as well as three master degrees in political science, European public policy, and public administration from the University of Innsbruck in Austria, the Institut d'Etudes Politique, Science Po in Paris, and the Graduate School of Public Administration at the International Christian University in Tokyo. Finally, before giving the floor or the microphone to our guest, it's important to say that all statements are made in a personal capacity and are the viewpoints of our guests and not their organizations. So for this episode, we are looking into science diplomacy. And the question is if it's a necessity in an uncertain future. And in this episode, we'll gain uh, a lot of insight into what entails science diplomacy and with that, we'll start with the obligatory question, what is science diplomacy? And I'd like to begin with Professor Young. Thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think what we need to recognize, first of all, is that science diplomacy is a composite concept. It was constructed about a decade ago, and it has three different types of practices. And, and that really creates some problems uh, when we talk about definitions that I'll, I, I can talk more about later. But, I would say science diplomacy is best understood simply as what occurs at the intersection of science and international relations. And, and that's obviously a very broad definition. Um, but to better understand and explain science diplomacy, there's this well-worn typology, maybe, maybe for some of us in the field, a little bit uh, tired of it, uh, but it was developed in 2011 in a joint report from the AAAS, uh, the uh, organization based in the US, the publisher of Science Magazine, probably many of people would know it as, uh, and the Royal Society in the UK. And they identify three types of science diplomacy practice, uh, diplomacy for science, science for diplomacy, and science in diplomacy. And I'll just really briefly uh, go through those three. Uh, when we talk about diplomacy for science, this is how diplomats help advance or facilitate international science cooperation. So helping scientists link up with one another across borders, creating joint research programs. And, and there's 
I'd say a fairly long history. Uh, it's a pretty well-established field, um, and there's official positions, uh, you know, who are science diplomats that that practice this. Um, the second one, science for diplomacy, is when scientists actually get directly involved in foreign affairs, uh, trying to improve relations between countries or pushing diplomatic efforts forward. I think you know a quintessential example here is the Antarctic Treaty of 1959. Uh, more recently, we might think about sort of the beginning of the COVID pandemic. There was an open letter from the Italian scientist. Uh, this was right at the time that the, the British were talking about uh, going for herd immunity and urging their colleagues abroad to lobby the governments to, to prevent this from happening, to, to stop this from happening. And um, the third uh, science in diplomacy is a way of describing the need for scientific expertise in diplomatic affairs. Um, so the way that science informs foreign policy making. So the examples here might be the IPCC or the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, situations and conditions uh, under which effective diplomacy really needs to be rooted in some kind of deep scientific understanding. Uh, so, so there are these three distinct practices which interconnect science and international relations. Uh, but again, they're very different things uh, with different histories, different agents, different rationale. So the problem is trying to define science diplomacy in a single straightforward kind of way really never captures all of these aspects. So I think you know, we need to think of science diplomacy as an umbrella concept with the purpose of intertwining these two fields more deeply. And, and in that way, it's, it's a valuable and, and, uh, and, and good concept. Following this, I would like to ask you, Professor Young, you mentioned that besides uh, government-appointed and self-appointed science diplomats, there are three types of actors. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. Um, I think when we talk about the actors that are involved, um, we should preliminary make two points. One is that there's explicit and implicit actors. In other words, people that use the label science diplomacy and others that don't use this label at all. And I think the second point uh, in advance is that the concept is really science diplomacy um, and those that practice science diplomacy, not those that call themselves science diplomats. Um, you know, that title, again, we talked about it, is, is really for the official diplomats that are practicing diplomacy for science. So, so what I distinguish is the three types of actors. Uh, first of all, there's the political diplomatic actors. Um, so, so the scientific diplomats, attachés, special envoys, but also really any kind of politician up to the heads of state that are working on knowledge intensive global issues. Um, the second set of actors are the science-based actors. Um, and here, I think we, we have two subtypes, right? We have government appointed science diplomats. These are people that are really brought in for their scientific expertise to participate in some kind of a, of, of a negotiation or a diplomatic practice. So for example, the Iran nuclear negotiations, you have people that were brought in uh, by the government to, to uh, help make that happen. And then we also have these what I would call self-appointed uh, science diplomats. Uh, these are people more activist in nature who are looking for ways to impact on global affairs from their expert position as scientists. Um, and, and I think there's really a growing cadre of young scientists that want to engage with the big issues of our day. Um, and they, they consider themselves science diplomats. And I know this because these are people that have really taken up um, the training materials that have been developed in our S44C project. And then the last group, which is really kind of a hidden group of, of science diplomats, or maybe just overlooked one, are the science managers and administrators, uh, the people that are responsible for joint programming, for transnational grants, for uh, infrastructures. Um, and as these become more transnational, they require diplomatic skills and they raise diplomatic issues. Um, and I think, you know, we can also think about university administrators as part of, of this group. Uh, there's even proposed this fourth category of diplomacy in science. In other words, this would be the diplomatic activities that happen under universities or academy of sciences. Um, so, so again, not all the actors are going to identify with the science diplomacy level, and, and very often they don't, but from the outside we can see that what they're doing is a type of science diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then uh, I'll direct a question to Professor Hennigel. 
from your experience within the EU, how influential are these actors that uh, Professor Young just introduced us to the different uh, types of actors uh, when it comes to impacting legislation and decision making? Oh, uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me and thanks to Professor Young for this uh, very uh, elaborate uh, introduction of the concepts. I have to say that, um, let, me, let me begin by saying that my own experience from the EU's diplomatic service is beginning to be a bit outdated. Uh, I, when I first joined uh, the European Commission DG Relics, as it was called uh, in, in, the, in those days, um, in, the, in the early 2000s, there wasn't a really, uh, let's say, strategic or systematic approach to science diplomacy. Yeah, I think um, what, it, what it was back then uh, is, is most comparable to a traditional bureaucratic organization of, 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 of a French type, if you want. So those were highly trained, uh, very professional officials that were bound by the rules of the functioning of, of, and, and, and the mandate given to their office. However, there were certain individuals who managed to somehow bend the rules in a way and, and to extend, so to say, their, their mandate. And they could take initiatives that would somehow uh, uh, be comparable to, to science uh, diplomacy of, of, the, of the different types that we, that we see. Um, so a lot, a lot has been happening since the early 2000s and the Madrid Declaration, for example. Um, when I, when I think of it, um, I, I could best explain it by giving you two examples. The first um, uh, example um, I experienced when I was uh, posted in Tokyo for uh, uh, two or three years, um, where, uh, actually, where actually science was used in the way I think it was here the perspective two uh, in, in Professor Young's uh, uh, categorization, where science was used as a tool for diplomacy. Uh, and the, the example I think of is uh, the ITER project, the International Thermonuclear uh, uh, Experimental Reactor, um, a joint project established in 1985 by uh, powers such as the US, the Soviet Union, China, India, Japan, and later also joined by the European Union. Yeah? And France, of course, was one of the founding members. Uh, uh, in 2001, the European Commission uh, took over, uh, so to say, the, the role of, of the member states and was represented there. And when I was in, in, the, in the political and economic section of the EU delegation uh, to Japan, this was actively used as a tool to um, uh, establish diplomatic contacts yeah, by engaging in this kind of discussions about, uh, about funding projects, about uh, which way scientific, uh, the scientific evolution of this project should take. Uh, you could get access to high level decision makers of your host country. So that was actually um, a way to, to really um, and, and, and this was a this was a, a, a common thing uh, to um, uh, to to have something to talk about in order to um, connect to get access and to establish uh, a sort of a trust and confidence relationship. Uh, this in the context of the rivalry uh, at the time between U.S. and Europe uh, uh, about who had the, the closer relations. With, with Japan, uh, who, was, uh, who was the closer friend and ally. So that's, that's the first example. The second um, would come from a different field, but nevertheless, nevertheless very important. And it would relate more to the, to the other perspective or the other trajectory of science diplomacy, where, uh, where you talk about a, a science-centered or science-based diplomacy, uh, where, uh, where um, uh, where you reach a goal defined by science, uh, by means of diplomacy. And I would take an, an example from uh, development cooperation, a very important uh, field of activity of the European Union's external action, where you, um, uh, in, in, the, in the 1990s and 2000s, you had a very a strongly 
scientific uh, focused approach. Uh, there was this concept of the of the joint uh, human development framework, uh, a tool for uh, uh, um, analyzing a crisis situation. In this in this uh, example, the the hunger crisis in the Sahel region, um, where you had a, a this transdisciplinary approach of um, uh, medical sciences, life sciences, uh, agro uh, science, um, uh, meteorology, uh, and a lot of other experts really going to the core of the problem and developing an approach uh, of of um, uh, of relief and recovery for the for the uh, population in question. So you had this this strongly. Um, science-focused approach built in without calling it actually science diplomacy. Uh, it was it was science diplomacy avant la lettre uh, by by uh, having a very thought through um, um, worked out concept of linking rehabilitation, recovery, and development. And uh, this this comes out from a from a, a well-informed uh, uh, branch of, of, of our field, the, the, the discipline of development studies, where a lot of people were actually putting a lot of effort into analyzing uh, what is the problem, what went wrong so far, how can we remedy this? And, and you had this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, approach. And then maybe to, so these, these are the two trajectories that somehow successively, I, I would say, in a sort of a evolution came about first, so to say, using science as a uh, as a means of, of establishing or opening channels of diplomatic relations, and then later the the, the use of science in doing better diplomacy. Uh, so uh, this is how I would would uh, describe it from my own practical experiences. And of course, it's it's a bit in the use DNA. If you think of Eurotone. Uh, the, the Treaty uh, uh, for Peaceful uh, uh, Utilization and, and Research on, on Nuclear Energy. I mean, that's one of the founding documents of, of what is the EU today. So it, it's, it's somehow not surprising. Professor Henneken, what do you consider to be the future challenges faced in terms of promoting science diplomacy within the EU and abroad? Well, I would think there is, um, uh, first of all, there's exogenous. Uh, challenges that I would link to um, the, the erosion of trust in elites and experts, uh, linked to um, uh, a plurality of sources, disinformation, uh, uh, maybe a legitimacy crisis that, that may uh, appear in, in advanced uh, uh, political systems uh, such as the EU and that we actually experience in Europe. Um, that would be uh, a couple of uh, a couple of reasons, or uh, if there's overwhelming um, uh, expectations uh, and an overload and an overstretch of all the things science diplomacy should be and should be able to to achieve. So that that could be sort of a, a couple of challenges or threats. Um, on the other hand, I think there's also uh, endogenous uh, challenges uh, that in that there is a, a thin red line between um, uh, scientific advice and, and to, to rephrase the science diplomacy uh, term and, uh, and, and sort of uh, activities that would more relate to advocacy. Uh, um, if you, I think science itself uh, has credibility uh, because of its independence, because of its epi, um, epi, uh, epistemological uh, uh, purity and, and uh, uh, foundation. So uh, if, if science diplomacy is, is instrumentalized or science is instrumentalized to further a number of uh, political goals, or if, if science diplomats themselves are so much activists rather than scientists, that could, be, that could also contribute to, to, uh, to a number of risks in, in what science diplomacy can finally achieve. And maybe also um, a different uh, group or a, 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 a different set of issues that are not yet uh, addressed uh, by, by traditional uh, scientific and diplomatic uh, linkages, uh, would, I would relate them to, to questions, how should we deal with artificial intelligence? Huh? Can we use it for science diplomacy? 
or uh, how can we how can we address problems of, of cutting edge, uh, maybe dual use military and uh, civilian technology and research? Uh, is that how can we how can we embed that in in science technology? So that that could also be a, a, a an open question. Yeah. Well, thank you for both your answers. Uh, to to build on to what both of you mentioned already, I have maybe twofold question that I'd like to present. Um, first of all, is this a new way of diplomacy the, that is the fusion of science and international relations? And if so, can you name a certain starting point for when this became the, the mantra or the, the new way of approaching uh, science and, and diplomacy as a fused unit, so to say? And uh, you can hear Professor Young first, and yeah. I, I guess I would say yes and no uh, in answer to that question. Um, you know, there's a fairly long history of some of the, uh, in fact, all three of the science diplomacy practices that I mentioned before. Um, I think, you know, Tanish has, has given us a, a number of interesting examples. Uh, we can go back certainly uh, to the Cold War and the relations between the US and the Soviet Union. And we had scientific cooperation then in, in a way of keeping channels of communication open. Um, and, and this is one of the ways that it's a um, science for diplomacy occurs. Uh, also, I think I mentioned before this Antarctic Treaty comes back from 1959. So, so there's these old uh, things, there's uh, science advising, uh, which goes back sort of to the 40s and 1950s that we see uh, science advisors being part of government. But the term itself, science diplomacy, was not really used for any of those things. Um, the term really emerges as, as we understand it now and as I, I presented it, just about 10 years ago. Um, and it's really been, I would say, gaining traction since. Uh, but in 2008, we had the establishment of the AAAS Center for Science Diplomacy. Uh, the big report that I talked about, the AAAS Royal Society report comes out in, in 2011. Uh, we see um, the Obama administration starting to talk about it around that time. The EU first has it in one of its uh, strategic documents in 2012. Um, so, you know, it's, it's new in, in some ways, uh, but in other ways, we, we can really trace it back. So I think it's just the term itself that we can say is new, not, not the actual practices that are behind it. Yes. I would totally agree. Um, I would see that the, the term um, in itself rising over the last 10, 15 years, maybe, um, maybe the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals, and then the whole um, uh, effort going on to, to prevent climate change as a catalyst for this kind of process and, and helping to really narrow it down and, and make it a, a, a usable tool, a tool at the disposal of both uh, the scientific community um, and and the diplomatic world, but uh, as as said uh, by Mitchell, uh, you could go back as long as uh, ancient Greece, yeah, when uh, Plato was was somehow uh, uh, sent to the the court of Sicily, uh, uh, and 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 being sort of a, a the scientist of his uh, of his days, yeah, and 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 contributing to to establishing and maintaining diplomatic ties while doing so, and then all through the history, but then taking a, a different pace uh, in the last decade, yeah, yeah, totally. So now we included Plato in our, our talk also. So this, uh, this challenges my, my next question, which was supposed to be a provocative question, uh, whether science diplomacy is a buzzword or a fad, or if it's something that's here to say in the long term. What are your opinions on that? You know, I, I think it's a bit of a buzzword for sure, but I think that's kind of the point. Um, you know, it's, it's hit a nerve right at a moment and, and it's been receiving a lot of attention, but it's not a fad. Um, I, I would really draw a distinction between those two. I, I think it's here to say, I think that science has become simply too central to international affairs, to innovation, to global challenges to see this going away. And, and I think, you know, the idea with 
bringing out this term or, or, or putting it out uh, in that report that I mentioned was to create a buzzword, was to create some, some momentum around this, to try to bring these two fields together, because this is something that hasn't happened um, and, and, and wasn't happening nearly enough. And so I think uh, this movement towards addressing global challenges uh, necessitates some kind of science diplomacy. And so it's good that we, we see this uh, catching some attention uh, as, as a concept. Um, yeah, yeah, I would I would agree again, and and I would add that uh, uh, it, it's sort of a, um, a sign of a maturing kind of um, concept when it when it becomes self-reflexive that people start to think about uh, what is it actually we're doing here when uh, when we have these high-level scientific advisory groups to decision makers in in international transnational fields. So I would I would think. It's it's good that it gained this kind of currency, and people uh, can 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 have a, a, a sort of a systematic and methodologically sound approach when using it. <clears throat> At the same time, uh, I would I would object, saying that um, it, it depends. Yeah, as long as science diplomacy or scientific effort in diplomacy is there to address a real world problem, uh, as long as it engages in, in joint problem solving, as it has been uh, the case over, over probably centuries, uh, then it's not, it, it, can't, it cannot be a fad, it's here to stay. Um, but you could also think of um, uh, diplomat, diplomats or, or the diplomatic world finding ever new playing fields to give themselves legitimacy and a raison d'etre uh, that could also be a perspective on it, and there I would be less of a uh, uh, of an optimist in, in in thinking if that kind of approach is is, is sustainable. So, yes. Now we'll jump to the next segment, which looks more into the future for for science diplomacy and uh, whether there's uh, troubling times ahead. Uh, so the first question I'd like to pose is whether there are any immediate challenge faced in terms of promoting science diplomacy within the EU and abroad. Uh, we'll begin with Professor Young. So I think what we found is that there are pockets of support for science diplomacy, but it's certainly not everywhere. Um, that the concept is gaining traction, gaining support within the EAS. Uh, I can, I can talk when we started uh, the project, the S4D4C project in 2017, we, we ran across a lot of closed doors, a lot of skepticism uh, over the concept that, that changed as we progressed through the project, which, which we finished uh, just uh, this year. But um, as of 2020, we see that there is now a science advisor in uh, EAS and uh, Jan Marco Miller is there and he's, he's uh, doing a lot of work and I think he's very well accepted and, and integrated uh, there. So, so I think this is, this is a, a, a changing process, but I think that um, when we talk about challenges ahead and getting it accepted, I think that what we see is that there's a, an increasing uh, acceptance of this as a form of, of diplomacy. Yes, so following up on that, I have a question or say an argument that I'd like both of you to uh, to consider. So my argument would be in, in, in this case, you already, uh, Professor Enigel, mentioned this, that with diffusion of science and politics or international relations, it becomes a gray zone uh, or gray area. Uh, when you're in, 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 say, when you're wearing the science cap and when you're wearing the politics cap. So with science diplomacy, would you say that it's the politicization of science or it's the scientification of politics that is diplomats, diplomacy? And I have a, just a, a clarification of what is meant with scientification. So it's, it's a process whereby the use of and claim to systematic and certified knowledge produced in the spirit of truth-seeking science becomes the chief legitimating source for activity in virtually all other functional subsystems. So which, this is quoted from uh, Weingart, but in short, this argues that science, like you mentioned it, before science was uh, undisputed, like science was based on uh, findings and factual event. But now when you have this fusion, suddenly maybe it's, it's 
a bit more challenge when politics are involved. I'd like your opinion uh, on this. Yeah. Uh, we can begin with Professor Henneker since you mentioned this point. Yeah, uh, I think this, this raises a, an important question and I think it's very problematic to, to, uh, to refer to such a scientification of politics because um, where, where, do, uh, where, where does legitimacy of, of scientific action comes from? Yes, from truth seeking, from, as I said, from independence and from its, its status outside the sphere of power. Yeah, so I think we sh the, the, the distinction between politics and, and, uh, and, and science is an important one. Yeah? Uh, political decision makers, they have a, a sort of a, a, a legitim legitimacy to, to, to push and, and to take decisions, whereas um, science can only be there to inform decision making, I would say. They have no, scientists don't have a, 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 an input legitimacy in, in a de democratic sense. They may have an output legitimacy in that they propose the best of, of possible solutions, but still it's up to decision makers uh, to, uh, to, to take such uh, decisions, even, even if they may be uh, unpopular. So there, there has to be a sort of, a, a, I think politics has the role of managing conflicting interests, demands, and preferences. And science cannot do that part. It can only give, provide the foundations for a best possible decision-making. That's what I, uh, what I would say. So that's, we, we cannot blur these lines. Uh, and, and then, uh, because it would also on the, the other way, it would allow uh, politicians to unload their responsibility for decision-making to scientists. And we don't want that to happen neither. Yes, Professor Young. Yeah, I would agree completely. Um, uh, I think, you know, this is, this is one of those situations where we need to steer clear of both of these. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a difficult path um, between them. In other words, uh, science diplomacy definitely should not be about politicizing science. Um, and, and in fact, you know, if, if we read back to that original uh, Royal Society AAAS report, they very clearly state that uh, it's crucial to avoid the politicization of, of, uh, of science. And yet what we see, and there's an excellent book by Michael Zern, which talks about global governance and talks about how as these knowledge intensive problems and issues become more important for our world, uh, they become politicized. I mean, we've seen it right with COVID. We started out with, with sort of a clear narrative, let's, let's flatten the curve, let's all be together on this. All of a sudden, at some point it breaks down and we have this politicization of, of, of COVID. And, and it's amazingly frustrating to, 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 to watch this, right? Um, but of course, in some ways, science is ripe for it because of the logics by which it operates. In other words, the, if, we, if we look at Robert uh, Merton's norms of science and we talk about organized skepticism, we, we are skeptical. And so we, we leave the door open um, to sort of the uncertainty of the scientific process. And this is hard for people outside of science to understand. It's hard for politicians to to understand how the process works and to know what counts as, as knowledge that they can use and what is still sort of a little bit in flux. And we see that there's always a rush to have the answer. And I think this is one of the difficulties that we faced with COVID is we knew nothing and we desperately needed information. So we sort of grasped at everything. And we see in that, in that uh, frame, we saw uh, newspapers and, and journalism that were very quickly going to preprint servers and, and presenting things there as though they were truth. And, and, and of course, that's not the way science works. So I think there's a lot of difficulties here about you know, this, this fine line between the two. And I think uh, what Thomas was saying, which is absolutely right, is that science should inform policy. In other words, um, policymakers, and we heard this during COVID, saying that they would follow the science. This, this really doesn't exist as something to do. The science doesn't give you something to follow. The science should inform your decision. It should tell you what you sort of can and can't do, but it's, it's not the final say. It's not the final arbiter. And I'll just add one last thing here, which is kind of, again, this, this, uh, the, the problem with the scientification of politics. Um, shows up, and, and I'll give an example here, which is 
uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, a Prague court overturned a government regulation on the grounds, and this had to do with masks and COVID, on the ground that there wasn't sufficient scientific evidence. And there was another example that I read about in California where a sheriff said they weren't going to implement a mask mandate because the science wasn't clear enough. You know, so, so here you have courts, sheriffs, police departments deciding that they can be the arbiters of what is good or bad science. And this is also deeply problematic. So we need to find a way uh, to communicate between these two different fields much more effectively. And that's really, in many ways, that's the role of the science uh, diplomat is, is to engage with that communication, to translate back and forth between these two very separate, very different uh, spheres of, of our society. Yeah, if I, if I may add one thing to these uh, risks and, and problems that were listed, um, I think there's also the risk that uh, on, on the side of science that by getting too close into the decision-making uh, process, science has uh, this increased and maybe exaggerated need of proving its relevance for policymaking. Uh, and science should also be free uh, to engage in, 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 in questions and, and, and think of uh, uh, foundational science uh, in, in to, to engage with problems that are not relevant directly for policymaking. So the risk would be that we that we judge the quality of science by its relevance for policymaking also. When or if uh, the scientification of politics seeps through the different political layers, like you explained, has happened with, for example, COVID uh, vaccination or in the case of wind power, clean coal, uh, would you say that it becomes the victim, so to say, for more emotionally based narratives or say Machiavellian plots where the science becomes sacrificed uh, for political gains? I mean, I think that's a danger. Um, I think, I guess what, what we need to recognize is whenever we're dealing with some sort of political issue, uh, there's, there's the science and the science side of this in these very knowledge intensive uh, problems that we face. But there's also uh, emotions, there's beliefs. I mean, I think what we know from, from a lot of studies is that facts simply don't trump beliefs uh, in terms of people's voting and in terms of the way they behave. So we somehow need to learn how to deal with that, whether it's uh, Machiavellian, I'm not sure. Um, but I think that the advantage, maybe if I turn it this way a little bit, of, of, of science, right, is that, that it it somehow is connected to some degree of truth, something that we observe in the real world. And I think what I see with the politicization of many issues in, in politics is really an idea that everything is just ideology. There is no truth. It's, it's a willing uh, turning away from looking at what is happening in the real world. Um, and I think that you know this is something that science diplomacy shifts us back away from. In other words, uh, that the world is real, there are consequences that are real that we can follow, that we can scientifically study. And whether we're talking about climate change or whether we're talking about wearing masks to protect ourselves from COVID, uh, this is a way to sort of recenter debates on, on the world as it is. And at the same time, we can't lose track of the values uh, and the interests and the other aspects that politicians need to somehow uh, combined together. In other words, they need to look at the science, they need to look at the values, they need to look at what interests are there, they need to look at how the voters are going to react to things, and that's their job, right, to figure out how to blend those things together into a good political decision that's going to be beneficial for the society that they're part of. Yeah, totally. I, would, I, would, uh, I wouldn't object to that, uh, and that's very important. And, and in order to, to have this kind of uh, this kind of fact-based analysis, this kind of uh, analytical approach, it's important to, to, uh, to guarantee the integrity of the scientific advice at, at, uh, at the disposal, because obviously uh, there's a lot of actors who would like to use science for political purposes, uh, not only emotionally based, but also pure material or power interests behind. Um, so uh, this is a risk, uh, but I think it, it can be contained. Uh, as said, yeah, still at the end of the day, it's the business of politics to, uh, to, uh, to show the political will, to follow the, 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 the right advice 
for the for the for the better uh, for the better outcome. Uh, uh, yes. All right. So for our final segment, we'll turn back the spotlight uh, on the EU and what the coming time holds for science diplomacy. Let me start by asking. Uh, in terms of the future, do you see a push for change in the scientific cooperation uh, that is from institutions, politicians and the European public? Uh, do you deem that it will increase or would it maybe lessen? Um, we'll start with Professor Young. Well, I think what we see now is, is increasing. Um, and I think that Science diplomacy fits really well with the EU strategy, uh, its global strategy, and, and especially the part of it that's dealing with leading the response to global challenges. I mean, it fits well with multilateralism, it fits well with non-military leadership. So I think um, this is the challenge for the EU is, is, okay, how do we engage sort of the power of science and the power of knowledge in order to accomplish some of these goals and, and to to show leadership in these areas. And I think this, if, if you look at the leadership um, literature, there's a certain type of leadership, which is called sometimes intellectual leadership or problem solving leadership. I mean, it's the sort of leadership power that is gained by knowing the answers to things, to understanding how things work. Um, and, and I think the EU is in a very good, very strong position to, to mobilize that sort of leadership. Seen from the EU, um... Obviously, this increase in, in interaction between uh, uh, between different communities, uh, communities of practice and scientific communities, is a positive thing. Uh, especially since the EU has this narrative or has this approach of uh, achieving global common goods uh, such as peace and stability, human rights, uh, fair and equal development, sustainability, and so on and so forth. And obviously, uh, uh, science uh, diplom diplomacy can uh, runs into open doors in, in, that, in that way. And I think this is here to stay, and this is uh, a growing, a growing uh, sector. Yes. So following up on that, uh, let me pose a maybe more of an ethical question in terms of that, that should science diplomacy be considered as a tool for promoting certain uh, values? I, I'm not going to call it European values because uh, I think they are shared across uh, many, many parts of the world. The idea of, say, human rights or access to vaccines or openness in society, sustainable uh, energy and privacy, etc. And so one thing is using it to promote certain values and on the other way should it be used to deter certain behavior. So say we, with science diplomacy being used in sort of a carrot and a whip kind of approach, do you see uh, uh, that as, a, as an approach that the EU might pursue? Yes, and we can start with uh, Professor Young. So I think, you know, the debate on this is sort of what sort of power is the EU? What sort of power does it have? And, and, and there's this whole line of thinking going back now about 20 years about normative power Europe and, and Europe sort of promoting its norms. And these, these are, are global norms. They're not specifically European, as you say. But I think, you know, we start to run into a very uh, severe problem uh, that's come up in the last, you know, five to 10 years, which is that it's very hard to use norms to influence the behavior of someone who doesn't accept those norms. And we see that there are key actors, and, and particularly China, right, that does not share uh, the European norms, a lot of these global norms. And so we're not going to convince China based on these, these sort of normative approaches. And I think that when we're talking about things like global challenges, you know, these are things that we need all the countries of the world to be engaged with. If we're, if we're talking about climate change, we can't have China opting out of, of climate change uh, debates or, or, or treaties. But I think, you know, to, to really tie in with, with this question of, of values, I mean, I think Thomas had brought this up before, uh, the artificial intelligence. But there's all kinds of technical standards that are at stake right now. And I think these are really important to be thinking about. In other words, we're already getting into the preparatory stages for 6G technology and, and shaping how that standard is going to be set. Um, and China is already engaged with that. 
China already made an attempt, and this is 15 years ago, to introduce an alternative to Wi-Fi. And it was an alternative that would allow much more surveillance and control. So when we think about values, I think we need to think about them in the reverse order. In other words, we, by maintaining sort of scientific standards in our control, we can be sure that they embed the sort of values we want. So we can be sure that our communication standards allow us to have privacy and free communication. And I think this is, this is the order we need to think. So, so these are all intertwined together. Um, uh, and we need to be thinking about our values and norms and how we, how we keep them in the international sphere. Uh, but probably in a very straightforward manner, this is not going to be the most effective way. We're, we're not going to convince other countries to come in on this, uh, or at least all other countries to come in on, on cooperation on the basis of these values. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I, would even, I would even be more fundamentally my critique. I have, um, I mean, from in, in my opinion, yeah, in my personal opinion, I think I can agree with the EU's values. But then as a, as a scientific, as a person who uh, follows, follows an, uh, an epistemological uh, uh, integrity, yeah, I can't take these values for granted. Uh, they, they come out of a certain ideology as well. So I don't think, I, I don't think it would be healthy for science to uh, subjugate to, to a, a, a predefined set of values, uh, uh, be it the use values or, or anybody else's values. The only uh, value that science should follow are scientific values of, of integrity, of intellectual, uh, uh, of, of of, of those kinds, yeah? not ideological values that, that may be political goals or, or, or uh, uh, political, uh, politically agreed uh, uh, conventions. So I would, I would think, it, it, again, it would be very expensive in terms of credibility for science to, 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 uh, to be somehow uh, drawn into that kind of uh, task yeah, to promote certain values. That's, I don't think science should do that. And um, it, it, may, it may expose science to, uh, to, to new, um, it, it may make science easily, an easy target for those who want to attack it. Yeah? Uh, think of uh, uh, the use values of, of, of rule of law and the promotion of rule of law worldwide and, and science, uh, uh, political science or legal sciences, if you want, yeah, uh, 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 banging on the same ground saying, yeah, this is uh, stability and this helps prosperity and so on and so forth. And then we have a, a, a real dilemma within the EU when it comes to rule of law. Uh, think of Poland, Hungary, and, and the fourth, or our values of, of uh, uh, when it comes to, to uh, the, the, the Human Rights Convention and, and the Refugee Convention. So um, this, is, this is a dangerous area. I think science should not be drawn into, into, this, kind of, um, uh, uh, into this kind of mission too deeply. Uh, Again, you would have the problem of of, uh, of blurring science with advocacy. So, and, and and that should be avoided. And then you may also think of of other actors. Yeah? Uh, it's not only the EU uh, using uh, science for its for its purposes. It's it's also it's also uh, you mentioned China, yes. Uh, but I, I would also mention, for example, Russia. Think of of, of Russia's uh, campaign to uh, to promote to 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 offer and to deliver uh, millions of doses of, of its Sputnik V vaccine uh, to, to countries in its sphere of influence or uh, the, the, the sphere it considers its sphere of, of influence to promote its own interests, to advance its role in the world. And, and, and so <clears throat> this, kind of, this kind of soft power approach, uh, if, if you use science to increase the soft power of, a, of an actor, uh, it, I don't think it's, it's, it helps the credibility of science. That's my point here. So lastly, to round off a very fruitful discussion, I'd like to pose the question, if there is any alternative to science diplomacy, if we want to achieve scientific progress, and here I'm thinking of health challenges, such as uh, pandemics and food shortages, climate challenges, etc. Uh, we'll begin with Professor Young. 
Yeah, I, I think when you say, is there an alternative? I mean, uh, there's a couple of different ways to look at this question. I mean, first of all, uh, of course, there's an alternative. Uh, we don't have to cooperate um, across borders for scientific uh, goals, but that certainly hurts the scientific endeavor. And I think what we saw with uh, COVID is that when we cooperate globally on a challenge, uh, we're much more effective and much uh, faster in terms of getting a result. So I think there's an advantage, but I mean, I guess one, one answer to your question is of course, like we can each go at it ourselves, uh, countries on their own, um, but it won't go as, as, as quickly and it might not go as effectively. Um, the second way I think of, of understanding your question um, is, you know, it's back to this question of, well, is it best called science diplomacy? Or maybe we call it something else. But I think at the bottom of all of that is we need to understand these global challenges that we're facing in scientific terms. And so whether we call the way we cooperate around them science diplomacy or we call it something else, if we, if we stick with things like climate diplomacy or water diplomacy or health diplomacy, um, you know, these these are, are debates over words, but at, at the bottom, we need that scientific cooperation. We need that shared scientific understanding if we hope to successfully resolve these problems. Yeah, I would, I would share this view and, and say uh, that, of course, there's always alternatives, competition or uh, um, uh, rivalry and, and, and the like, but it comes at a cost in terms of efficiency and time and costs and, and so on and so forth. So I think um, uh, it has it has a point. I think it, it comes out of of a sort of an evolution or an evolutionary process that uh, thing a certain way of of uh, cooperating uh, remains the dominant one because it, 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 no better way was found. Yeah, uh, because that's yeah the best we know so far. All right. I would like to thank Professor Young and Professor Henneke for participating in today's episode. And thank you for listening in on this uh, podcast episode. I hope it's been an informative experience. This podcast series has been realized with support and funding from the University of Agda and the European Erasmus Plus program.